0: It's great to be here again to speak to you the Word of God, and I'm thankful for the privilege to be able to do this. I want us to go to the book of Ephesians, and we're going to be looking at Ephesians chapter 6, verses 18 to 20. And um, you can just turn there, put your finger in there, as we look to the Word of God. Why don't you pray with me as we do that? Father, thank you for your mercy, your goodness, grace, for the ability to hear your word, that you've made us alive, that you've brought us out of darkness into your light. And would ask that you would, in these moments ahead, encourage our hearts to be people who are steadfast in prayer. Give grace in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me just read the text for us. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 18 to 20. With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. And pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth. To make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. That in proclaiming it, I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. The steadfastness of prayer. I believe that all of us want to be men and women of prayer. But actually, if one were to look at statistics that's consistently done at events like this or workshops, seminars, statistics that are shown in Bible colleges and in seminary that we are woefully lacking in a consistent prayer life. Often, pastors will say, as I've talked to many students even over the years, as they go through their seminary experience, and I would ask them, what is lacking right now in your spiritual life, and often they would say prayer. It's not so much the study of God's word. It's not the preaching of God's word. It's not even the involvement in ministry itself that's lacking. Perhaps it's not even the striving towards godliness as much as one can really do it without prayer. That's questionable. But when asked, it's my prayer life is not what it should be. And, and oh, that response can be sort of um, in one sense, it's just a, a token answer we give and we can say, well, it's not what it should be um, in the sense that it will never be perhaps what it should be because as we talk about having communion with the living God, I don't know of anyone that would say, you know, I think that I've had enough or I think that I actually pray too much. I think that I'll cut back some. Have you ever had that thought? Anyone here thought, you know, you go to your pastor or are you as a pastor talking to another pastor friend or pastor i think i'm just praying entirely too much for you and for the lost and for the needs of the world i'm going to back off some have you ever heard that before but what have you heard you're convicted because you're not praying enough you're not spending enough time with the lord the master seminary next year will celebrate 30 years 2016 of being really a commitment to be steadfast in training men to preach the word of God and to minister in pulpits and to minister as lecturers, professors, missionaries all around the world, 30 years. And we have a motto um, that was created by our president, whom you heard earlier. We train men as if, who's ever heard it before? What does it say? Lives depended on it. We train men as if lives depended on it. And that is in fact true because lives depend on men going out preaching the word of God, ministering the word of God, preaching the gospel, saying to people that you must be saved, that you must come to a saving knowledge of Christ, and then nurturing the body of Christ so that they can go out and do the same. So we do do that. We train men with that in mind. And it's a rigorous training. Um, I will often see students, even now I have what we call a discipleship lab, and I talk with them about their studies, and often a student will say, I didn't know it was going to be this hard. I didn't know it was going to be this much. I have one class, and I have to read about 3,500 pages in that one two-unit class. I didn't realize it was going to be this way. Well, how is your sleep pattern? And often students will say, what is sleep, you know? I've heard of it, right? I heard that it exists. So it's rigorous because we take it so seriously. But then I've often asked then, we train men because lives depend on it, but then we pray as if, And if you were to complete that, how might you say it? You might say, well, I'm here because I, in one sense, I want to be trained better because lives depend on it. I want to be edified in my own life, my own soul, so that when I leave this place, wherever you may go, I will be better equipped to minister the gospel in some way. Having heard these messages, I will be more steadfast in ministry. But then if one would ask, I pray as if, lives really may not depend on it. I pray as if people can gain salvation on their own, so why do I need to intervene? I pray as if people really don't need the Lord, so I don't spend as much time as I should. But we want to be steadfast people of prayer. So in this message, and and every message should really have an expectation And if there is no expectation and one wonders what is the point of preaching itself, what is the point of instruction? So I come with an expectation that some of you would make changes in your life and you would be more diligent in your prayer. Some of you would repent of some degree or another and say, Lord, I'm not praying as I ought. I am not steadfast in my prayer life. And that all of us would make a commitment and say, Lord... Spur me on so that I can pray as if lives truly depend on it. Not only does your own life depend on it, but the life of your loved ones and your friends depends on it. The, the, the lives of your enemies depend on it. The lives of those that may hate you and have castigated you, they depend on it. Because if we, in fact, believe in prayer, that God has given us the privilege of prayer that there is a mystery, mind you, there is a mystery in that we interface with the living God and he is moved by our prayers to even save some. I'm here today because of the prayers of a faithful aunt. My mom passed away when I was seven and, and I got some motherly nurturing from my mom's younger sister. You know, my dad was there for me and I'm thankful for him. But my Aunt Mildred, I remember when I came to Christ as I was in college and I called home and I said, Aunt Mildred, I'm a Christian now. I had gone away believing that I was, became the grips that I really didn't know the Lord. And I'll never forget her first response was this, Carl, I prayed for you every day. Every day. And somehow in that great, um, if you will, sovereign event where her prayers meeting with God's sovereign plan that I was saved. We need people who can stand in the gap for others. And so in this passage, I'm hoping that we would be burdened all the more to be people of prayer. And I want to share from Ephesians chapter six, verses 18 to 20. And we're going to glean from Paul's letter here as it comes to a conclusion and look at these three dynamics of prayer that should motivate us to a greater prayer life and in turn have a positive effect not only on our lives and those closest to us. So these three dynamics, closer prayer, more prayer, a positive effect, our lives and the lives of others. And we'll see just simply put forth that we can be steadfast in prayer as we consider the call to prayer we can be steadfast in prayer as we consider the perseverance of prayer. And we can be steadfast in prayer as we consider the object of prayer. There's a prayer that I came across some years ago that I thought it was quite dynamic. You, perhaps you've heard it before, but it's a, a story of Pastor Joe Wright, who was asked to open a new session of the Kansas State Senate and everyone was expecting at that time, you know, the, the usual politically correct generalities and, and we prayed to you and, and that you would help us and that we would see a better day and whoever you are that's out there and, and not mentioning Jesus Christ and perhaps not even mentioning God. But they didn't get that when he prayed to open up that session of the Senate as a matter of fact, it was so popular that his church received 5,000 phone calls just requesting the prayer itself. And 5,000 phone calls saying it was so positive, And only 47 people said that it was negative. Obviously, fools who drew that conclusion. Obvious. Fools do exist. And that's why we need to pray for fools. Amen. Because even the fool in his heart has said, what, well, there is no... God, we need to pray for them. And his prayer was this, and I read it. Heavenly Father, we come before you today to ask your forgiveness and seek your direction and guidance. We know your, your word says, woe to those who call evil good. But that's exactly what we have done. We have lost our spiritual equilibrium and inverted our values. We confess that. We ridicule we the absolute truth of your word and called it pluralism. We have worshiped other gods and called it multiculturalism. We have endorsed perversion and called it an alternative lifestyle. We have exploited the poor and called it the lottery. We have neglected the needy and called it self-preservation. We have rewarded laziness and called it welfare. We have killed our unborn and called it choice. We have shot abortionists and called it justifiable. We have neglected to discipline our children and called it building self-esteem. We have abused power and called it political savvy. We have coveted our neighbors' possessions and called it ambition. We have polluted the air with profanity and pornography and called it freedom of expression. We have ridiculed the time-honored values of our forefathers and called it enlightenment. Search us, O God, and know our hearts today. Cleanse us from every sin and set us free. Guide and bless these men and women who have been sent here by the people of Kansas and who have been ordained by you to govern this great state. Grant them wisdom to rule and make their decisions, direct their decisions at the center of your will. I ask it in the name of your son, the living Savior, Jesus Christ, amen. Quite a prayer. And it stirred quite a few people. Prayer is necessary. Now, there are portions of the prayer at the end. I'm not particularly sure if his language of us and and cleansing us, that I I probably would not have used that language. But I, I understand the sense of his prayer, the heartbeat of it we need to be praying people so let's consider even from the text that is in front of us first that we should should be steadfast in prayer by considering the call to prayer notice in verse 18 verse 18 he says first that with all prayer and petition and then he says in the latter part of verse 18 all perseverance and petition for all the saints So prayer, petition, pray, perseverance, petition. So is this call that they would be a people of prayer. And of course, the connection to this prayer, to the very armor of God, as Paul is concluding the letter and saying, beginning in verse 10, that now we're in the midst of a spiritual battle. Prepare yourself for this battle. Put on the full armor of God. And I'm proposing that even prayer Is sort of a welding that holds this armor of God together. And notice how Paul has repeated this use of prayer in just this verse. So Paul says that you're to pray or you're to intercede and you're to offer a petition to the living God. He has told us, as I had said before, that the only way that we can stand in this world against the enemies of this world is to have on the full armor of God. Notice what he says in verse 14. Stand firm, therefore, so we're to gird ourselves with truth. The breastplate of righteousness shod our feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition, the shield of faith must be be taken up. Then in verse 17, put on the helmet of salvation and then take up the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And having done that, what we must also do is to make sure that we are people of prayer. Now, I will say this again, perhaps even several times through this message, that when we're praying, we are communicating with our commander-in-chief. Because what point would it be if we are clad in our armor, prepared for battle, but we're not having communication with the one who is directing us? Now, in the Old Testament, there's some very rich words for prayer. And they have some very interesting nuances, and I just want to walk you through some of those to, to give us some sense of the privilege that we have to be people of prayer. Uh, one word that we find in Job thirty three twenty six, and also in Exodus 9 and 28, that means that we are involved in intense supplication. And it carries this idea that when we pray, we're to be earnest in our prayer. And I like that word, Earnest. Because we don't use that as often, perhaps, as we should. To be earnest means there's a seriousness about it, there's an intensity about it. At times, I've said to people when I've asked them to pray for me, I said, I'm in full earnest if you would pray for me. So, in our prayers, there should be an intensity about our supplications that we offer before the Lord. Be earnest in prayer. Another word that is often translated intercede, and the King James will often translate it to entreat. We see it 85 times in the Old Testament and examples of it might be Abraham when he entreated Abimelech, Moses when he prayed for the people of God, and Samuel when he prayed for the people of God. They were interceding for them. They were standing in the gap. There's one curious word in the Hebrew that you find it only of Daniel when he is going before the king and it means to inquire of one that is of royalty, So when we go before him, he is saying, I come before you. I am inquiring because you are the one that has the power to make this decision. Another very interesting Hebrew word that that literally means to bend or to bow, to humbly submit. We see it in, in... Um, Ezra 6 and 10, twice we see it used there, that we're bowing down in prayer. So it communicates this sense of humility that's involved. And when we do pray, it is a state of humility because we're going to that one who has absolute power. And we're saying of him, I have no solutions of my own. I cannot intervene. I have no power. You must do it. And even as my aunt prayed for me every day as I went away to college and, and into my sophomore year, I came to Christ. Ultimately, what she was saying is that, God, I cannot save my nephew. If I could, I would. Uh, how many of you, if it was given to you, if you had the power to choose those who would be saved, wouldn't you leave this room right now and just go do that? If I said right now it has been given to you the power to go and save those that you will simply speak to them, would you stay here? I wouldn't. I'm sorry, Steve. I'd have to leave, right in the middle of the message. But you don't have that power. But we can speak to the one who does have that power. In Psalm 119, you see it in verses 15 and. Twenty-three and 27 and 48, verse 78 and 97, this sense of a word that's used here that describes a deep and intense pondering. Let's just consider some of those examples, if you will. Look at Psalm 119. Psalm 119, beginning in verse 15. Here, Translated meditate, he says, I will meditate in your precepts and regard your ways. Verse 23, he says, even though princes sat and talk against me, your servant meditates on your statues. 27, here he says, make me understand the way of your precepts and I, so I will meditate on all your wonders. In 48, he says here, in verse 48, I shall lift up my hands to your commandments, which I love, and I will meditate on your statues. We see it in 78 and 97 and 148 as well. So this sense of pondering to consider. A very interesting word that's used in, in Exodus thirty-three eighteen. 18. And, and this word is a Hebrew word. simply simply nah is the word. An expression of a reverent heart. And, and this reverent heart, has a sense of the awesomeness of God. They're aware of one's complete unworthiness. And so in Exodus 33:18, why would that be appropriate there? Because here is Moses requesting of God. He wants to see the glory of God. So in requesting something like that and even communicating with God, there is this realization of utter unworthiness, but yet I come before you. Another word that is used uh, in the Hebrew text, it means to employ God's mercy, and we see that in Exodus thirty-three nineteen, because it says, "God will be a gracious God; He's going to employ His mercy." In Job nineteen six, it means to entreat even. In Deuteronomy three twenty three, it means that he besought the Lord, employing mercy for others. So, when we think about prayer. Vivid words that help us communicate that we are to have a relationship with the living God that is intense, that is earnest, that is humble, that has some sense of unworthiness. But yet, as we know, according to the New Testament, that we can come boldly to the throne of grace. And why can we come boldly to the throne of grace? This speaks again to the sufficient work of Jesus Christ because he has made a way. Amen. We cannot come boldly on our own. And so when we look through the prayers of Scripture, the Old Testament, at least 139 prayers. We see great giants and we see the prayer of Nehemiah as he recognizes the sin of the people and he's asking God to move on their behalf and give them favor so they can go and rebuild the walls. You see the great prayer of Solomon as he would even pray to lead the people of God and he admits to God, "Uh, I'm just a child. How can I lead this great people? And he prays, what, for wisdom? And God says, since you have prayed for wisdom, I will also give you that as well as great wealth. And, of course, the many prayers of David when he would cry to the Lord for his intervention, he would cry for wisdom, he would cry for protection. There's a great prayer of Moses as he is intervening on the behalf of people. And that was interesting because recently I was just, as I'm going through the scriptures again, And at times when God, because the people of God are stubborn, and God says to Moses, let me just wipe them out, and I will begin a new nation in your name. And what does Moses do? Instead of saying, you're right, these are troubled people, he prays for them. And God relents. And then there's the tender prayer, you think, even of a Hannah, Samuel 1 and 2. You remember Hannah, and now she's been praying for so long that she would have a child, and now she has this before she has a child, what is she doing? She's praying and she's rending her heart to the Lord. And what does the, the man of God think? Why is it that you're sort of drunk with wine? And he says, No, my Lord. He says, I'm, She says, I am pouring out my heart to the Lord. Isn't that a great picture? So prayer should be that, that we're pouring out our heart before the living God. And she was doing it in such an intimate way, in such an engaging way, that even the man of God thought she is drunk with wine. But it was just the opposite. She was drunk with Christ. She was drunk with her God. She was drunk with a burden. And now she's saying, I give it to you. In Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 and following, we see prayer there. And Paul's prayer there is that they would understand this power that is available to the believer. And what he's essentially saying is that if you would just avail yourself of this power, you don't realize that it's readily available to you. So he wants them to have understanding. Then in chapter 3, verse 14 and then following, he prays there that they would grasp the love of God, that they would understand this great love. So there is a call to prayer, and Paul makes it really plain in Ephesians 6. Go back with me to Ephesians 6 and notice, again, the text. And then there is a perseverance of prayer, the perseverance of prayer. So if we're to be steadfast, understand the perseverance of prayer. So Paul, there's simply a call, prayer petition, And then he says that the latter part of verse 18, partition for all the saints. But yet something else is happening here. He says that we should be a people who are persevering in prayer because he says, be on the alert with all perseverance. We heard earlier about the perseverance of the saints. And in fact, it will last. It's speaking to consistency. It's speaking to not being moved, if you will. And notice the language He says, all times, and then he says, all perseverance for all the saints. So all prayer, all times, all perseverance. And perseverance is absolutely necessary because without perseverance, there can be the tendency to just wane, to to be moving in a certain direction and to give up, to quit. And we are so thankful, even as we heard earlier, that even our perseverance is not based on us. Our perseverance is based on, based on the faithfulness of God in the very life that we have. Perseverance is necessary. Um, some of you, perhaps many of you, are familiar with one of the most grueling battles of World War II. The Battle of Iwo Jima. And... Um, What is interesting about it, some records that you may see about Iwo Jima, they thought that the battle would be over in a matter of several days. It wasn't that. There was the expectation that there would be few casualties. It was just the opposite. Some even described the battle of Iwo Jima as throwing flesh on the fortified concrete. as men just came and they lost their lives. One company, that was the flag-raising company, Easy Company, and we're familiar with that picture of the flag being raised there, that they went into the battle. There were seven officers, as um, Captain David Severance is giving an account. He says, seven officers went into the battle, and only one, me, walked off Iwo. Their company started with 310 men. They suffered 75% casualties. Only 50 men boarded the ship after the battle. But one thing about that battle, it was they persevered. At some point in time, surely they could have thought, Here, my, he's gone, my comrade is gone, he's gone, he's gone, he's dead. We didn't expect them to be so fortified. Perhaps let's all retreat and let's start over again. But they persevered, and eventually that flag was raised. In prayer, we must be the same way. We are in the midst of a spiritual battle, are we not? We recognize that. And we must have that same spirit, if you will, of those Marines that said, we are the proud and the few. And we are the people of God, are we not? We are a royal priesthood, are we not? And we have a divine calling, and we must persevere in prayer as we fulfill that calling. He says all the saints as well. So not only all prayer and at all times and all perseverance, be on the alert, but he says all the saints. Just a sampling of verses that communicate this idea. First Thessalonians 1, 2, it says, we give thanks to God always for you, making mention of you in our prayers. Second Thessalonians 1, 3, we are always to give thanks to God for you, brethren, as it is only fitting. And I like that language. It is only fitting. It's only proper. It's only appropriate that because we have invested in your spiritual life and we're concerned about your spiritual life that we want to see that spiritual life mature. So I ask you a question. are there people in your life that you want to see their spiritual life mature? Are there some grandmothers here and grandfathers you want to see your grandkids come to faith and their spiritual life mature? Are there not parents here this afternoon and you want to see your family mature? Are there not pastors here and leaders here and you want to see your flock mature? Aren't there mothers here that want to see their husbands grow in faith and husbands who want to see their wives grow in faith? Absolutely. Then we must persevere. 1 Corinthians 1.4, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus. And we see the same thought Philippians 1, four, Colossians 1, three, Philemon 4. This idea of praying for others, praying for others, praying for the saints. We should be a people because we are family who pray for one another. You know, if I don't pray, I feel like I'm lacking in some measure. There's a void in my life regardless of what I've done during that day. If I've not talked to the living God, something is wrong. We cannot go through our lives and, and never really avail ourselves of the riches of God. We, we need to seek his face and seek him out. In one sense, you can say that it's absolutely, perhaps even illogical, that we go into battle without having communication or being direct contacts with, with those who has commanded us. No one goes into war without hearing for, from their commander. You don't go into the battlefield without communion from the one who has sent you out to fight his battle. And remember, Paul to Timothy, he says that you should be like a a soldier in active duty, not concerned about the things of the world. And that message, granted, Paul is writing to Timothy to instruct him and to encourage him as a minister of the gospel. But one doesn't have to have a calling vocationally to realize that's a part of my calling as well that I'm actively engaged in spiritual warfare. Are we, all agree that, are we all in agreement that you're actively engaged in spiritual warfare? Absolutely. All we need to do is consider our lives and the attacks that are upon our lives and upon our doctrine, we know that we're engaged in this way. And I think this, when we think about prayer, I'm not talking about first public prayer, but private prayers that we have. Because as we pray privately, that really is a statement of our character and who we are. We can pray publicly, and I'm not saying that we should not, but it's those private prayers that no one knows about. And that's why Jesus would rebuke even the religious leaders, because what was their tendency when it came to pray? They wanted to be known by men, and they have sort of these elongated prayers and And they wanted to be recognized for their eloquence. But no, in one sense, they have their full reward in that way. I'm talking about prayers that we lift to God, even when perhaps we cannot speak with the most bold tones that we would like to. But we seek our God. These are the prayers that we speak to him when we're intimate with our God and we're crying on behalf of God of others, prayers that we lift up for loved ones and even for enemies, for those who have slighted us, and we're praying for our church. I've often asked people at times when a one, it is, let me make this statement, it can be really easy to ridicule ridicule and to be critical, can't it? That just naturally flows from us. But I've often asked people, especially when it comes to the political arena, at times I um, Will see what someone has posted or comment that they've made about the president or or some other political leader, and say that they're, you know, these people are godless and they're without Christ, and I cannot believe they represent us as in my senate or I can't believe that he's president. And I've often asked people, when's the last time you prayed for them? Then there's like this hush. I've seen all of your posts on Facebook. I've seen your tweets that you put out. Did you match any of those with prayer? And that is biblical. Timothy to, Paul to Timothy as well. That entreaties and prayers be made for whom? For kings and those in authority. So are we praying for these people? Now notice what else the scripture tells us. Go back to verse 18 and he says, with this in view, be on the alert. And I just want to focus on that for a moment. Yes, We are to be on the alert. How can one remain alert? Well, I believe the answer is in the verse because he says that we're to do this in the spirit. The only way that we can remain alert is that we are praying in the spirit. This is a great emphasis throughout um, this epistle about being in God or in him. And it began in chapter 1 that we're in God and we're in Christ and we're in the Spirit. And now we see it here that we're supposed to be praying in the Spirit. God has saved us to himself and for himself, and he is calling us to walk worthy in a way that is honorable. And how can we do that? Partly as we pray in the Spirit. Now, praying in the Spirit for some means that they're going to speak in tongues or in some language or they have a prayer language that really amounts to nothing but gibberish and words that no one can understand. I remember when I was young in the Lord in Cincinnati, um, as I was there in college, and I went to a church service, and and I you know, knew I'm trying to feel my way through Christianity. And I went forward and I said, well, come forward if you want to receive your language. And I thought, wow, okay, this, this could really work. I need to take a foreign language um, credit for school, so let me see what they have here. I really would prefer Spanish. Is there a Spanish line somewhere, you know? And they went forward and says, well, have you received your language yet? And I says, no, I haven't actually. And they put their hand on my head and, and um, I said, okay, is, is that it? Um, and actually I started to speak in some language. And I don't know what it was to this day. Um, and I would do this every day and I'd speak in this language and I should have recorded it one day. And I looked at the scripture and I said, okay, this is not biblical. And I stopped, quote, speaking in my language. But I have people today that will tell me, friend, you just need a prayer language. And why do you need a prayer language, they'll say? Because with that language, the devil doesn't understand it. Really? Okay. So essentially what you're telling me, I could speak in some dialect of Swahili and he would get that. But if I speak in this language, he wouldn't get it do you really believe that? I don't think so. That's not what Paul is saying. He's not talking about some gibberish. He's saying that we pray in a way that we are being controlled by the Spirit. It is setting the context for our prayers. And it will be manifest even in ways that we see in the book. Chapter 5. How do we know that we're praying in the Spirit, are living in the Spirit? Because there will be what? Joyful expression. Speaking to one another in what? Psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. There's going to be mutual submission. Submit to one another. Wives and husbands will be fulfilling their roles. That's when we know that we're in the spirit. Chapter 6, what is going to happen? Children will fulfill their their roles. They will be respectful to parents. Fathers will fulfill their roles. They won't exasperate their children. That's what's going to happen when one is in the spirit. Workers will be responsible in their job, knowing that they're doing that unto the Lord. Employers will honor people who work for them, knowing that they have a master as well. And then you will be suited in the arm of God, prepared to do battle. That's what it means to be in the Spirit. And when we're in the Spirit, then God will direct our prayers. They won't be special prayers. We we don't have to wait for what Benny Hinn would say and wait for the third wave of the Holy Spirit, it already came the moment of salvation, amen? Now, there was one wave and that's when we were brought into the family of faith. And now what we're doing is putting off the old, putting on the new, and now we speak a different language. Prayer is in some sense like this. Uh, um, I believe, and this is more personal, and you can judge the statement by itself, That when one is engaged in prayer, that one can get into, I'll call it, the zone. You say, okay, boy, he's going off base here. What is he talking about? The zone. I played college football. And in playing college football, um, you may have observed it before, our athletes that will refer to it, we talked about being in the zone. And what does it mean by being in the zone? That somehow you're performing at such a peak performance that nothing around you matters. And you're feeling good about the moment. You're into the game itself. And that guy that's coming at you that weighs 350 pounds, it doesn't really matter. He's as light as a feather. And I've had some of those moments where you just, like, really feel like you're there. And someone would say, Hargrove, you were in the zone today. Uh, When you are in practice, you were in the zone. I said, okay, good. Um, Hopefully I can stay there. And um, when I think about prayer, there's this element I I just use this phraseology, perhaps something better. You help me out with it, if you will, when you see me afterwards. Being in the zone means that we're in his presence. We're praying to the living God and nothing else matters. We're communing with him. It's like if you're engaged in a good conversation, nothing else around you matters, does it? And so as we speak with him, God is ministering to us as we minister to other people. People come to mind, we pray about lost loved ones. We we have a greater realization of our own sin and I need to confess to the Lord. And time doesn't matter. What's happening around us doesn't matter. Because we're communing with the living God. It's persevering in prayer for all the saints. And that's how we can remain alert because we're doing it in the spirit. We're involved in a spiritual battle. i ask you this question. Say for instance, just make this really practical at this point. Um, What happens? Everyone here would agree that prayer can be a hard discipline. Can it not? It can be a hard discipline. Our minds can be easily distracted. Sometimes things can take us away from praying. Thoughts can come to mind even as we pray. And we're wondering, where did that thought come from? I'm praying to God right now. Why is it that it can be so difficult. I believe that when we are praying, that Satan and his hosts are trembling. It's a spiritual battle. In warfare, it's a basic um, sort of aspect of warfare. The first thing that you want to do with your enemy is to cut off communication. You think about any war, whether it was our time that we've been in Afghanistan, Iraq, And I think about initially, say, for instance, when um, the Gulf War, one thing that happened, that all the initial missions that were going off those aircraft carriers were pointed at communication stations. Why why were they pointed at communication stations? Because guess what? No communication. I cannot say they're flanking you. I cannot say put your troops here. I cannot say we need support. There's no communication. And so when we're talking with the living God... Surely, the enemy is riled by that now I would never be i 've never had i don 't believe in this foolishness of then rebuking Satan or even having any conversation with Satan. Why would I do that? He has no power. I want to speak to the one who has power, but I do believe that in it he is quaking when we pray so if there is a sense and I know there 's a sense in which we 're involved in spiritual warfare that everything that his minions can send against us will be sent. Isn't it interesting? One goes home and we turn on the television and everything is fine. However, we get on our knees to pray to the living God and now the host of hell quakes. Because now we're, we're talking to our commander-in-chief. Prayer can, and it should be, Transforming. Special needs are brought to mind. People are brought to mind as we commune with God and we pray for all the saints. There's a battle cry that's out there for us to pray to our God. So when we're in the spirit, it's the spirit is sensitizing us in our lives. Isn't it? There is a beautiful ministry of conviction. Conviction is a beautiful ministry. Because when we're convicted, it is the Holy Spirit preventing us from venturing in an area where we should not. It's the Holy Spirit that is speaking to our hearts and convicting us and saying, you should apologize. It's the Holy Spirit saying to us, your tone was inappropriate. It's the Holy Spirit saying to us that you should be more patient with that person. And so when we're in the Spirit, then we will manifest it in these different ways, and surely we will be a people who are of prayer. I remember a counseling situation that given, as I often do, Uh, This couple some homework and they came back that next week and one of them said that they didn't do it. And I asked them why. And they said, almost with this sense of just being unashamed, they said to me, if I did it, I knew that I would be convicted. It's a sad place to be in, isn't it? And perhaps sometimes the reason we don't pray is that we know that in those sensitive moments, God might convict us. But let's consider So there's a call to prayer. There's a sense where we must persevere in prayer. But notice the object of prayer. Be steadfast in prayer as we consider the object of prayer. Notice the latter part of the text. Of course, he says, petition for all the saints. And then he says, and pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of of my mouth, that is, To make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in proclaiming it, I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. This is a beautiful ending to this section, because what is Paul saying? He is asking the Ephesians that they would intervene on his behalf. Notice he says that he wants to speak boldly as he ought to speak. And you think about Paul. Wait a minute. Paul, this one who stood before the sages on Mars Hill. Paul, the one who would speak in the temple. Paul, the one who would speak that despite his hardship and persecution, he would persevere with no concern for his life and his personal safety. This same Paul who would be beaten, this same Paul is asking for boldness in his In his speech, why? Because Paul realizes that in himself, he is not what? Sufficient in himself. There's a dependency that he must have on the spirit. So it says, pray for me. Uh, Your training doesn't matter. Pray for me. As I was preparing for the message before, and even this one, God, help me. This giant of the faith realizes that he needs divine intervention so so should we. Now, I want to close this message by giving you um, perhaps nine reasons that we don't persevere in prayer, that we are not at times steadfast in prayer. There are nine, reason I, nine reasons I want to give you. Number one is this. Sometimes, and none of these are absolutes, some of them may apply to you, some of them may not. But to a certain degree, I'm sure that they will. Number one, why do we not at times persevere in prayer? Why at times are we not steadfast in prayer? Number one, we have an inadequate view of God. An inadequate view of God. And if we had a more adequate view, a more awesome view of God, we would understand the privilege of speaking to this God all the more. Let me give you a very real illustration that was right before us. John MacArthur, 46 years in his ministry. I think now 101 million downloads of his messages. Messages heard a thousand times a day around the world. Now, and, and I didn't say it here because it might embarrass him, but I'll say it now. Um, how many of you, if he said, you, you do know, no raising of hands or anything like that, say, you know what, friend, may I have lunch with you? And let's just talk. How many of you would say, well, Pastor John, I'm really entirely too busy. I don't think I can fit you into the schedule. Anyone would say that? Probably not. And if he said, you know, I'll come to you actually. You live in the Bakersfield area. I'll come to your area. Let's sit down and let's have a conversation. And we would say, let me take full advantage of this. Let me glean from this man and his faithfulness in ministry. We would be engaged in the conversation that we would have with him. I notice at times even after, and I'm not saying anything is wrong with what I'm about to say, after the church services at Grace Church and people line up for a while and they would keep him there for hours, talking to him, shaking his hand. People that come from all around the world, they want to take a selfie with him. They want him to sign their their book, their commentary. And all that's good because there's an endearment that they have for him based on his faithfulness in life and his wisdom that he has. They have a, a, a view of him that is proper, we might say. We multiply that times that are beyond measure in our God. If we have a truly awesome view of God, we would say, oh, what a privilege to speak to him. Let me make sure that it happens. Number two is this. Why are we not praying the way that we should? Um, we are ignorant of prayer, perhaps innocently, but nonetheless, we're not aware of our call to be praying people. So ignorant, perhaps innocently, nonetheless, we're not aware of our call to be people of prayer. We must invest our lives in praying for God's people and for our own souls. Study prayer. Read men of prayer. Read about women of prayer. Read about prayer and the connection to revivals that have happened around the world. You will not find one revival that started, that began without the people of God praying and asking for God's intervention. Number three, why, do we, why don't we pray as we should at times? Because we misuse prayer. Often our prayers are too self-oriented. We live in a, in a narcissistic society. It is so much about us. Have our prayers go outward first. Number four, why do we not pray? Why do we not pray as we should in a way that is steadfast? Perhaps you've allowed some sin to go unchecked in your lives. Psalm sixty-six, eighteen, And it tells us, if I regard iniquity in my heart, then the Lord will not hear. You remember the word of God from of Peter to husbands. that If we're not caring for them, that what is going to happen, then our prayers are stalemated. Number five, you have a passion for ministry, but not the God of ministry. This is so important because often I will see people, they may be engaged in ministry. They like the energy that comes from it, the tasks that are involved, but there's no affection for the God of ministry. I've often seen this even in theological students where it's this paper is written, this thing is due, and what can happen? They can go astray because now they're... Affection for the living God is lost in the middle of, ironically, and sadly ironic, the study of God. Does that make any sense? None whatsoever. It was Thomas Brooke, and I, I love this little line. He said that Thomas Brooks said, cold prayers often freeze before they reach heaven. Think about that for a moment. It's not heartfelt. It's not warmed. It's not intimate you see men and women that struggle for others to the living God. It's like this. Um, I've often, I've said it over the years, one thing that I've noticed at times, you're, perhaps you've noticed it and prayerfully it has not been you. I'm at a restaurant and I notice and I have the tendency to observe people. It's just uh, part of my makeup. And, and I'll notice there's this couple that's sitting together And they're there, and they don't have any conversation. The only time they talk is maybe she tells him that I want, you know, the ribeye with the baked potato and iced tea. And then that's it. And they're there for 30 minutes, 40 minutes, and not a word. The check comes, he pays for it, and they walk out. And there was one situation, I was speaking somewhere in in Indiana, and I was in a restaurant, and I had noticed that, and I was so tempted, and I'm glad perhaps, maybe it was the Spirit saying, don't do that. Uh, I was about to get up and say, friends, talk to one another. You're obviously married. I see the rings. Have some conversation. What's the point here? They are married, but yet there is no what? There's no... Yeah, it's no relationship. People can enjoy ministry, be involved in ministry, but not be engaged with the God of ministry. Number six, it's simple. You cannot discipline your minds or lives for prayer. It, it is a discipline. We have to learn to pray. Someone will say, "Well, how do I learn to pray?" It's simple. In the, in some ways, in the same way that you learn to preach. Yeah, there are certain skills that you learn. But in order to get better, you have to simply preach. In order to pray, to learn to discipline yourself to pray, we simply have to pray. And and don't, sometimes I've talked to students before and they'll read something about a Luther who talks about the busyness of his life and of his day. And he will make this commitment and say, I must spend the first two hours in prayer. And that student wants to go out at times in my own zealousness. Yes, that's what I'm going to do. Three hours a day. Then it lasts for about three days. And sometimes the discipline is to make sure, here's the key word, consistency. Consistency. You say, well, how much time should it be? Don't start with the time. Start with the consistency of prayer. A list of people that you'll pray for every day. And then perhaps what will happen is, as you pray more, you realize, I'm missing this. I need this, and it will grow naturally. Here is number seven reason that we don't pray the way we should sometimes. Because we lose heart because prayers are delayed, are denied. So we're waiting for that prayer to come about or the answer to that prayer to come about and we stop praying because we don't see the answer or we see that God has said no to us and perhaps God has said no several times so we don't pray as we should. And we know that God is a heavenly father that is all wise, amen? And at times in his wisdom, what he will do is delay and at times he will deny, but we should continue to pray. Number eight, we don't love those whom God has entrusted to us. That's a personal one. That could be a convicting one. You don't really love people. Maybe you don't love your grandchild as much as you thought. You don't love your family as much as you thought. You don't love your pastor as much as you thought. You don't love your sheep as much as you thought. If we conclude that prayer is beneficial for them, and we do we do so little of it, there's a natural conclusion we must draw. Number nine is this. At times, we're simply too prideful to pray. Prayer is an act of humility. It is saying, I'm not sufficient in in myself. I need you to intervene. I want to close with us looking at some gospel accounts. A couple more minutes. Look with me first at Matthew 6. I'm sorry, 26. Matthew 26 verse 36 familiar account the garden of gethsemane jesus sit here while i go there and pray he took peter the two sons of zebedee he's grieved distress i'm deeply grieved the point of death remain here and keep watch with me And when he went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass for me, yet not as I will, but as you will. And when he came to the disciples and found them sleeping, he said to Peter, So you men could not keep watch with me for one hour. Keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Perhaps in some of my younger, more zealous days, You know, accounts like this, um, perhaps I would have said, had I been there, I would have watched. Had I been there in that moment, I would have been diligent in praying for my master as he's undergoing the gravity of the reality that he will take on the sin of all his elect. I would have watched. Really? Really? when the opportunity is in front of us every day to be on the alert. He said it in Matthew 24 and 25, be on the alert, the signs are coming. Acts chapter 20, be on the alert, false teachers are going to come. And Peter, be on the alert. And we say to ourselves, had we been there at Gethsemane, surely we would have watched for an hour. Really. Really. We train men as if lives depend on it. But we pray as if that's a question you must answer. If you'll be steadfast in prayer. Father, thank you for your greatness, God, for who you are. Show mercy. Help us to pray. Christ's name.